This podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia, a major national partner of the Royal Flying Doctor Service and also the sponsor of the Flying Doctor podcast series. You're listening to a DM podcast. I um, crashed a few times, required some resuscitation um, and some support to... Uh, stay alive, went to the ICU in between the two surgeries, crashed and then was wheeled back into surgery and during that second surgery, as I understand it, they made a phone call to the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital to say, we think this woman is in very serious trouble. Still breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Got a 493, understood, thank you. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Radri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders, past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. Let's face it, life isn't always easy, but in science it's becoming increasingly clear that the way we tackle our challenges directly influences the outcome. Julia is of amazingly strong character. She's been transported by the Royal Flying Doctor Service some five times, and several of those flights were a dash to save her life. Her medical condition severely impacts her quality of life, but her attitude, determination, and courage has her doing things many of us would never consider possible. I'm going to start this interview with a small snippet of a song sung by Juliet for her five children when she was preparing them for the fact they may lose her. It's called Glitter, and words by Patrick Droney. String of lights on the door Welcome back to your life This is worth living for There's so much left in store And we don't get to choose Who we get to love Or who it is we're gonna lose Or what breaks our hearts in No one really dies if the love remains Cause nothing that dies really goes away See grief, it's just like glitter It's hard to brush away Bright light and it still shimmers Like it was yesterday Hello, Juliet. Hi. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to talk to me. I was amazed when I heard about your story. We've just recently had the Oceans to Outback Challenge, which is this big sort of peer-to-peer fundraising campaign all around the country. And it's run through the month of October. And through that challenge, uh, social media has been alive and well. And your name and face and photos popped up. And and the story you told relating to that just really impacted me, which is 
what caused me to reach out and have a chat. I So first of all, tell me a little bit about Oceans to Outback. Why did you decide to get involved? So the Royal Flying Doctors Service have been integral to my recovery from serious illness. They've flown me four times from the Harvey Bay Hospital to the Royal uh, Brisbane and Women's Hospital uh, in varying uh, degrees of critical condition um, requiring uh, medical treatment that could only be provided in a major city and a big tertiary hospital. Um, so obviously the cause is very close to my heart for that reason. Um, I had actually been the recipient of a previous um, RFDS flight in uh, when I lived in Kingaroy, uh, which is also a regional area. I had a rough a ruptured appendix at that time and so I was flown to Toowoomba and had some surgery there and uh, went on to live my life um, until this most recent medical drama that resulted in these other four flights. So that's pretty much what inspired me to do Oceans to Outback. I did ask my doctors last year in 2022 whether I could do Oceans to Outback. I was really quite motivated to get on board, but at that time I was not physically well enough um, and they urged me not to. Um, and trying to be as uh, compliant a patient as I can be, um, despite I think my doctor's thinking that I'm a lot more difficult than I think I am. But I decided to listen to them and I didn't get involved. But I was waiting for the opportunity this year, knowing that I had worked very hard on my recovery and that I would hopefully be in a position to be well enough to actually participate and raise some money for this service that's very close to my heart and um, that I have very deep respect for. And I believe a, a family member of mine was a recipient of a flight very early in the um, it's sometimes shortly after, I believe it was like the late 1920s for some sort of snake bite. And there's a, a, a family history story about that family member. I think it's like a great, great, great grand uncle or something who had an RSDS flight and that was also life-saving for him. So I feel like there's probably a long family history there that I'd like to learn about. Oh, that's great. Now on Oceans to Outback, you took up a team challenge and your team, as far as I know, was called Team Gutsby. Could you explain why the name of the team and who was on the team? It was actually called The Great Gutsby because it was a play on words around The Great Gatsby, which is a, um, a film, a book um, that originated in the 1920s and, as I understand it, RFDS is also from the 1920s. Um, so I thought given the nature of my medical condition for which I required the flights, from RFDS being gut-related and um, all about having lost most of my bowel and stomach, I thought that it was a nice play on words and um, it just sort of was something that was a bit gimmicky and, and sort of fun and I tossed up a lot of ideas. We, we talked about, you know, guts and glory and all sorts of gut-related um, names for the team, but we decided that the great Gutsby had a good ring to it. So that's what we went with. What was your target? Because I've run the Oceans to Outback or, or participated in the Oceans to Outback for the last two years and I was really proud of myself for setting a target of, you know, maybe 80 kilometres, but your target was out of this world. What was that based? On. So my personal target was 231 kilometres for the month of October and that's because I worked out that a flight from Harvey Bay to Brisbane was about 231 kilometres and I had thought to myself, 
I had four flights, so four times that is a lot of kilometres. So I figured I would probably just personally commit to doing one of those legs, and yeah. which I obviously achieved probably almost twice over, I think, in the month of October. But the team itself was aiming to run, walk, ride the equivalent of those four flights from Harvey Bay to Brisbane, just in honour of the fact that that's part of the reason I'm still here. And there are members of my team who um, are dear friends and also members of my treating team as well. So uh, some of those include my one of my surgeons and a dietitian and a psychologist um, who have all followed my journey and understand how important the Royal Flying Doctor Service is for regional Queenslanders and also for me personally as somebody that they treat. And then also I've had some family and friends join the Great Gutsby, including my stepson Jasper, who's um, 16. And uh, he's also joined Parkrun with me. So it's been a lovely experience to um, to do those things with him. I know that he um, did a presentation at his school about the Great Gutsby and the Oceans to Outback Challenge. Um, and he was very proud to share his story and our family story um, of my illness. It wasn't just a journey that I was on, the whole family was on this journey. So I'm really uh, grateful for the opportunity you know, for him as well, because I think it was a way for him to sort of process all of this as well. Um, and I think just showing the children that we can build something positive and do something positive and something positive can arise out of such difficult circumstances for all of us is a really good message for them to walk away with. And my, my surgeon was determined to run at least as far as me. So he set the goal personally for 231 kilometres. And I know that was very difficult for him. It's okay for me because I'm on uh, medical leave from work. So um, I clearly have more time on my hands than a busy uh, upper GI surgeon, um, but he did. He made it. I'm very, very proud of my surgeon for that and um, also very grateful that he um, prioritised doing this with and for me. Mm. Now, you mentioned that you're on leave from work. What do you do for work? So I am a Queensland public servant and have been for about 18 years. I've worked for a variety of different departments. I love my job and my colleagues and I really miss them. I have tried to go back to work a couple of times, but my health has unfortunately got in the way and I, my doctors have just said to me, you need to not be at work at the moment, just focus on your recovery and that's what I've been doing. Uh, now I went on leave in February. I've been trying to work out, well, how is it that I want to contribute to the world and is if it can't be through work, then what might that look like as well? So I'm having to grapple with those kinds of life decisions. So, Juliet, um, would you mind just walking me through what happened a few years ago? So this all sort of started just a couple of years ago. What was the main issue that occurred that resulted in that first transportation? Not the appendix, but the, the later one. Uh, on the 9th of November 2020, I started experiencing a little bit of back pain, a bit of abdominal pain, just nonspecific, wasn't sure what it was. I was at work at the time in the office um, in Harvey Bay, which is about half an hour from my home. And I had said to my colleagues, I just don't feel right. There's something not quite right. And I'm in a bit of pain. Um, and I talked to one of my colleagues about, oh, I, you know, if I had a hot pack, I'd, I'd use it. I'd, you know, I think I probably just need a little bit of pain relief or something. So I went next door. There was a chemist next to my office, went and bought a heat pack, popped it in the microwave, sat there, worked for the rest of the afternoon. And at five o'clock, I sent a message, a team's message to my colleagues 
that said, uh, I'll see you tomorrow. I went home and that night became um, sicker. I experienced more pain as the night wore on and by about nine-ish, I believe, from my memory, I decided at that point, I said to my partner, I need to go to the emergency department. This is not normal. There's something wrong um, and I need to get this checked out. So I went up to the emergency department and at the Maribyrnong Hospital, which is a, a fairly small regional base hospital where I was triaged and treated and they decided that I required transport to the Harvey Bay Hospital. And by the time that transport occurred, which was about a 24-hour period, my stomach and bowel had died and was in a process of uh, what they called hemorrhagic necrosis, which sounds very, very serious when I look through my notes. And uh, I had a couple of, was wheeled into surgery and had a couple of surgeries there where they disconnected my bowel and my stomach and resected some of the bowel, um, removed some of the bowel, tried to see if the rest, the, the surgeon's term was, would, if it would pink up and if it would actually start now that it was untangled, the twisted bowel, if it would you know, come back to life, but unfortunately it didn't and I um, crashed a few times, required some resuscitation um, and some support to uh, stay alive. Went to the ICU in between the two surgeries, crashed and then was wheeled back into surgery and during that second surgery, as I understand it, they made a phone call to the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital to say, we think this woman is in very serious trouble. We don't know if, uh, you know, we have the resources and skills here to treat um, and to save her life can we send her to you and uh, they said yes pop her on a chopper and send her down to us and um, that's what they did they organized the chopper and then they organized my family to come and say goodbye and they made it very clear to my family that uh, I probably would not be returning and that this was life-threatening and uh, I I have a hard time thinking about how that would have played out for them because I was not there. Obviously, I was in a coma at the time and I couldn't be there to um, support my children through hearing that terrible news. I can't even imagine what that was like for them. And I've had some conversations since then about that time and what that was like. And one of my children said that after David got home from the hospital, my partner's name is David, and that, uh, that my children's stepdad, they witnessed him hanging my small T-shirts on the line and they saw him cry. And uh, that's a very unusual um, scene in our home, like seeing David cry. That's when they said that they knew that this was very serious and that, um, that I was in a lot of trouble at that point. And then I was flown to Brisbane and I had two further surgeries there where they just progressively took more and more of my small bowel. Um, until I had about 190 centimetres left, which may have left me with uh, maybe not short bowel syndrome. Anything under two metres is considered short bowel syndrome, which is a very particular rare condition that I now have. And at 190 centimetres, I probably wouldn't have had the same issues that I do now, but I did require a fifth surgery a few months down the track to remove even more of my bowel, and I now have 130 centimetres, which is, puts me well and truly in the range of short bowel syndrome and uh, with a lot of difficulties retaining nutrients and um, keeping my, my body as nourished as, you know, it needs to be. Wow. It's, it's hard to know how to respond to such um, such severe medical condition. It's, it's um, really scary for you and for the family. This podcast has been made possible with the support of Izuzu Ute Australia. 
Have you seen any of our seven large RFDS flight simulators as they move around Australia? Attending school, community or field days? Each is being towed by an Isuzu D-MAX ute, courtesy of Isuzu Ute Australia. Reliable vehicles are imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and the Isuzu D-MAX and MUX vehicles are the perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these simulators right across Australia. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online. When you were transported from Harvey Bay to Brisbane, was that the Royal Flying Doctor Service that took you that time on that leg? No, that was Q Air. So that was an air air retrieval chopper. Yes. And then, you know, four further flights from there. So I remained in hospital after that time for six consecutive months, which is a very long time (laughs) to be in hospital. But part of that time was spent at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital, particularly when I was recovering from surgeries and having more complicated complications. But because it was known that, you know, I needed I wanted and needed to be close to my family whenever possible. Um, that's when the RFDS came into um, to play. So I was transported between Harvey Bay Hospital and the Royal Brisbane Hospital at key junctures throughout my journey when mm-hmm. I needed to go to Brisbane for treatments and then coming home on the other uh, another leg to um, be transferred back to Harvey Bay Hospital to be closer to my family whilst awaiting further surgeries and things like that because I was still too unwell to come home but well enough to be in a smaller hospital without the resources of the Royal at that time. It's it's one of those things, it's a, you know, the gut is one of those things we take for granted. You don't see it, you know, every day you put stuff in the, in the mouth and every day it does its thing. I've always been quite passionate around the subject of nutrition. It's always been a subject that's very dear to me and with my own family, I'm probably a little bit over the top in terms of making sure they get their protein and making sure, you know, for me, um, I've really come to see and acknowledge the important role that what you eat uh, determines how you feel. And so that I really struggle to see how you would manage that because you've lost your almost all of your small bowel, which is which is the part of the bowel that actually absorbs nutrients and mm-hmm. and takes them into the bloodstream and feeds the body. So without that, what challenges has that presented you just in day-to-day life and doing stuff that we would normally take for granted and, oh, I'll have some Vegemite toast or whatever. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, I do. Um, so I guess my understanding is that the average person has between five and seven metres of small bowel. I have uh, 1.3 metres of small bowel. Um, so that greatly limits the real estate bowel real estate with which to absorb the food that I put through my system, as you put it. There are a lot of impacts and some of them physical and some of them psychological for me. So my relationship with food from a psychological perspective is compromised just because eating is associated with pain and nausea. And so it's obviously when something causes you pain and and nausea and unpleasantness, you want to avoid it, don't you? And so for me, that's food. And that's a very difficult thing to live with because a lot of, for a lot of people, food is such a central part of their lives. It's such a massive part of our social lives. It's a big part of our work lives. I remember returning to work for a period of time and, you know, we'd have work morning teas and we would have, you know, dinners when we were at you know, meetings and things like that where um, I think I just started to really realise how much of a central role food 
and nutrition and the social side of food. I totally agree about about food. In fact, my dad, who's um, in his 80s now, has been a food and wine lover his entire life and he's made it really clear to us that for him there is no living if he can't enjoy food and wine for him there is nothing you know so how important that connection is between food and a pleasure Mm -hmm. and survival and connection as you were just saying before so how do you manage eating because I understand you were trying to take food orally for a long time and tried all sorts of different things and it just became so difficult that you ended up moving to a feeding tube is that right yes yeah that was the eventual result of my challenges with food I got out of hospital I spent six months in hospital I left hospital I was offered a feeding tube a couple of times throughout my journey but I really didn't want to concede defeat as I saw it. I really wanted to try. I wanted to see if my body could could handle purely oral intake. I wanted to try and maintain my weight that way rather than um, relying on a feeding tube. Um, so I stubbornly sort of persevered for a period of time. And I do think my surgeons and doctors wanted to also see if that was possible. And I think it was an appropriate thing to do to be a bit more conservative and cautious about jumping straight to that as a solution. Um, and it did allow me to really test the limits of my new gut system and plumbing. And I was able to maintain my weight, but it came at a significant psychological cost for me because of the severe pain I was in most of the time. I knew that every time I went to put food, solid food in my mouth, it was going to cause me pain and I was going to want to vomit and I was going to have to sit with that and try and keep it down. And the struggle was something that I find very difficult to describe to people um, after the fact, but it was a, a very intense and very difficult time. I wanted to try and I was given the opportunity to try and I tried. <laughs> um, and then there was a point at which I was sitting in my car thinking, I don't feel like life is worth living. And for me, that is a very uncharacteristic thing to be thinking. Well, was at that point, I was... I had just fought for my life for six months in hospital. I had spent months and months hoping to live, making bargains with the universe, really desperately wanting to live this life that I have, to be here for my children and to enjoy all of the things that, you know, obviously except eating and food, that I, I was still able to do because there are things that I can still do and enjoy even if it isn't a good meal. Um, And so I decided at that point, sitting in my car, that I would, as I put it then, concede defeat um, and accept a trial of a feeding tube. So the thing that worried me the most, which is a bit strange, is that my colleagues might judge me or that people would think that, you know, because I had an NG tube at first, a nasogastric tube, which is a very obvious thing up your nose and uh, and across your face, taped to your face for a couple of months. Um, but that was the best way to see how I my body tolerated tube feeds. And if that was going to be an ongoing thing, then the consideration would be given to a gastrostomy feeding tube that's inserted directly into my stomach. But I have to say that it changed my life. The feeding tube initially when I first got it meant that all the pressure was off. I didn't have to cause myself immense pain. I could receive nutrition through um, a very slow pumped rate of liquid feed and this feed that goes through the feeding tube that I use is 
partially, it's kind of partially digested. It's called a peptide-based semi-elemental feed is the correct term mm. for it. But it's something that I was able to digest more readily. I was able to take more nutrients from that because by the time it got to my very short bowel, I don't have any of the first part of the bowel, only the last bit. It was ready to absorb um, as much as possible. And so my nutrition and my nutritional status improved out of sight with the feeding tube and that was just such a relief I can't even describe how much of a relief it was I just didn't even care that I had a tube on my face anymore because I felt so much better Um, and that I guess speaks to your um, comments earlier about the importance of nutrition and how it affects Mm. the whole body my brain felt better I was thinking more clearly Um, I was able to start imagining reclaiming parts of my life that seemed impossible before, like my PhD and, you know, finding ways to contribute to the world that, you know, in the past I would have thought, you know, I I was a very um, sort of academically inclined um, person who really loved to read and learn and write um, and that seemed a bit beyond me when I was uh, Mm. very malnourished and then the feeding tube placed and that changed. So that was good, but it's a daily thing for me to have to contend with. And so sometimes I'm still malnourished because of my fears and reluctance more broadly around nutrition and hooking up my tube. And sometimes I even have a dummy fit about not wanting to hook it up because I am angry about having to uh, needing it in the first place. And, um, and so I'm almost my own worst enemy in that respect, but it is, I, I guess I'm trying to paint a picture of the ongoing psychological journey as well. Like it is, you know, physiologically a difficult thing to, to adjust to receiving most of your food that way. I am lucky that I can still have oral nutrition though. So I know of other tube-fed people who are solely tube-fed and can't eat any oral food at all. And certainly when I was in hospital, I was on I was on what they call total parenteral nutrition, TPN. So that is nutrition through your veins. So they hook up a, um, a central line that sort of ends just above um, your heart through one of the major veins in the body. Um, and then all of your nutrition is delivered via that, uh, that vein. So that was when my digestive system had pretty much given up the ghost altogether and I had a number of complications whilst I was in hospital for those six months necessitating the six-month stay. Wow. So being on TPN for five months and almost having nothing orally was very, very difficult because and I would find myself like licking Vegemite toast or chewing things and spitting them out just to taste it. And I have a friend in Melbourne who Uber eats to me some cold rock ice cream um, and I knew that I couldn't eat or swallow most of it and I knew that if I did swallow it, I would throw it straight up again. But I just remember that day she, the Uber Eats driver showed up to the ward with my ice cream from my friend in Melbourne, which I think is an amazing thing in and of itself. And, you know, I, I, I ate some, I, I put some in my mouth, spat it out. I also swallowed some and threw it straight back up again, but was not regretting my life choices at that point because it tasted amazing. <laughs> um, so I feel like coming from that place where I could barely keep anything down and where most of my nutrition was delivered via a vein to graduate to trialing oral intake, failing at that, but being able to use a feeding tube, which uh, is also accompanied by some oral intake. So as long as I don't have a lot of fibre in my diet, because fibre would place me at an increased risk of a bowel obstruction because of how my um, bowel 
is now. There's a lot of adhesions, as you can imagine, with all those surgeries. And I have a subacute sort of bowel obstruction, a stricture where one of the surgical joins is that will occasionally cause grief. Mm -hmm. And I land myself in hospital with an obstruction and gets fixed and then I come home. And so that's been happening since I got out of hospital, that in and out kind of situation. But I am lucky that I can still eat orally. So I prioritise chocolate and cheese. Yes. And coffee. Yes, a woman, a woman <laughs> close to my heart. Yeah. Oh, yes. So I had decided once I got the feeding tube and I was still working out what some of my oral intake might look like, that those were my priorities, chocolate, cheese and coffee. And anything else is a bonus. So I do try and sit down with my family at, at dinner time and I will try and sample whatever it is they're eating. Sometimes I can have, you know, like a small butter plate with, you know, a few bits and pieces of whatever they're eating on it, including sometimes a little bit of fibre just to try and, you know, test the bowel and see how it's going And because the bowel can adapt over time and I'm actually wanting to continually challenge it so that I can see, you know, how it's handling what I'm asking it to handle. The two-year post-surgery mark sort of represents a bit of a milestone for a bowel uh, resection patients. The bowel is thought to be able to adapt up until that two-year post-surgery mark um, and then pretty wow. much what you've got at the two-year mark is expected to be your lifelong kind of condition. So what I'm now left with is probably what I'm left with the rest of my life, but I will keep trying to sort of see how um, – see how I can push my bowel to adapt further if it can. So, yeah, so that's been quite the journey, the feeding tube journey, but I am grateful for it. And once I've worked through the psychological issues that I have with food and, and nausea and uh, and my anger and rage at even, you know, needing all of this in the first place, then I, I think it will be onwards and upwards from there and, and my body will be um, all the better for the fact that I have a feeding tube. I do have a question. I do have a question about your family. My gosh, they must be strong people. They are. How have they coped with this? Because they almost lost you a number of times and, and you're backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, and now you've got this sort of ongoing physical condition that will be a challenge for the rest of your life. How, how do your family support you and, and, and how have they taken this, this news and this journey? My family have been champions. So this has been a long journey for them, as you say. Very traumatic for my children. Um, but I think, you know, some of the biggest impacts have been on my partner, David. So I was in Brisbane a lot of the time in hospital and he was driving three hours to Brisbane, three hours back, trying to work a full-time job, look after our uh, five, the five children that we have between us and just keep the home fires burning and that was such a massive thing for him to have to do and also at the same time worrying about potentially losing the woman he loves and his partner in life and the person with whom he hoped to you know have adventures long into retirement and old age you know that would have been very difficult for him to to manage but he he was a champion so I'll tell you a little bit about David that a little story that kind of illustrates just how he handled the situation. I had a stoma bag for a period of time as well in hospital. So I had what they call an enterocutaneous fistula, which is a tract that forms between my small bowel and uh, out through the skin through my belly button. Uh, so through that particular tract, most of my small bowel fluid would flow through this, just this tract that my body had created because of all the obstructions. It all had to go somewhere. And so my body being the clever 
thing that it is and our human bodies are so incredible and I've learned more about bowels and how the body responds to extreme trauma than I ever wanted to know but it's quite fascinating and this enterocutaneous fistula exited my body at the the belly button mark and I would be losing litres of small bowel fluid through this fistula every day. Um, A high output fistula is about one litre. Some days I would make it to two litres. I would lose electrolytes that way and it was all very dramatic. We had a stoma bag that sat over the top of this fistula. Um, And because a, a fistula is not a stoma per se. So stomas are created by a surgeon and they are created in a very neat and kind of symmetrical way usually or that's the idea so that a stoma bag can fit over it and the terrain of your stomach and where they place it is all very key. Whereas when your body just decides this is where we're going to have an exit, um, you actually don't get a say about the terrain and how that works. So because of all the surgical scars and I had um, the actual uh, surgical scar had come apart and that was sitting right above where the fistula was and so dressing this fistula with a stoma bag and catching all of the uh, output from the fistula was very, very difficult and gross, if I might say so myself. Like it was not a nice experience to go through. A lot of the nurses in the hospital, because they were used to changing stomas and stoma bags over the top of stomas instead of fistulas, would do it in a particular way. And my partner and I learned that my fistula required dressing in a certain way and that there was a certain sequence of events that needed to occur and a sequence of different strategies and um, some quite strange kind of MacGyvering that needed to happen to make sure that this this bag would not leak and that I would not wake up covered in small bowel contents in the middle of the night in the hospital. So David, um, being the problem solver organiser that he is, created a whole PDF how to change Juliet's stoma bag um, for all of the nursing staff just in case someone had to change it in the night um, and he wasn't there. But otherwise he would insist on being the person to change the stoma bag himself. So he wouldn't let the nurses do it. He was known as the third stoma nurse in the um, in the Harvey Bay Hospital and um, he was sort of an honorary member of staff because he was the one that could change my stoma bag and make it last for two days. Now, changing my stoma bag was a very painful procedure for me and so he knew that if we could do it in such a way as to limit the amount of times we had to do it, that was obviously better for my well-being. So he was the one there. I'm the one that's going to change it because I know I can make it stick for two days. Other nursing staff, bless their hearts, they did their absolute best to try and um, you know, dress this stoma, this uh, fistula, but often it would leak in two to four hours and I'd be covered in small bowel fluid and crying and and on the phone to David and he'd be like, I should have done it. So he was the person that would drive hours and hours to Brisbane just to change my stoma bag or to Harvey Bay and that, I guess, is a a story of dedication and love um, like no other. It sure is. Mm. Yes. It sure is. What a wonderful, wonderful man you have. I do. I do. Just (laughs) amazing. Yes. Um, and my children handled things really well when they were home alone. You know, a couple of the uh, eldest children were at the time sort of in their late teens. Lily, who's now 22, she would come home and look after the younger children. She lives in Brisbane. She's at uni there, but she would come back and spend time with the, her younger siblings and help try and keep the home fires burning while David was in Brisbane looking after me and my other children all did their very best to to kind of keep on keeping on because they knew that that's what I needed them to do. I needed them to focus on their schooling and their friends and all the things that kids are supposed to focus on and that would have been very difficult for them to 
focus on knowing that their mum was in such a precarious medical condition in hospital away from them. That's right. So they're also champions in my view. And I know that when I came back from hospital, some of them experienced some quite severe anxiety around every time I needed to go back to hospital. So I had frequent and still have fairly frequent admissions for low potassium. Potassium is a very important um, electrolyte. And the body needs it to keep your heart pumping properly and, and without adequate potassium in your system, you end up with heart arrhythmias and cardiac problems and you're at risk of sudden death. So that's, you know, not a good thing. And I need to be in hospital sometimes having infusions of potassium because my, my gut as it is with it being so short – sometimes just can't absorb enough in and of its own. Like I, I have lots of supplements mm. that I put through my tube and I put a lot of potassium, um, liquid potassium through my tube each day just to try and keep my levels high enough. But inevitably they drop. And especially now that I'm doing lots of running um, and I'm sweating more, that means that I'm losing more potassium. So my children for a while there, I'd be in and out of hospital getting top-ups of potassium and that was usually just an overnight thing. But it would really unsettle them when I was away from, you know, I'd come home and I was trying to recover and then all of a sudden overnight because low potassium would usually um, become obvious to me in the middle of the night when I'd wake up with arrhythmias yeah. and I'd then I'd then have to go to the hospital. So they would wake up in the morning and I'd be gone um, and that was also very terrifying I think for them at certain, I mean, I think they're kind of used to it now but I don't know that you ever really get used to the fact that your mum occasionally will go to bed and she'll be in hospital when you wake up. Um, so that uncertainty mm -hmm. for them I think has been very difficult to deal with but they've handled it like champions. They sound so supportive, so loving. They are. They have an amazing mum. They really do. <laughs> I'd like to ask if you have any advice for other people that have had major medical conditions that have sort of impacted them, you know, surprised them and and have sort of taken over their world. Do you have any advice? Because you're so inspirational and, <laughs> and such a, I mean, really, you are um, a force to be reckoned with, I would say. So do you have any advice for anyone? I think... It's easy to get overwhelmed by the enormity of the situation that you're in when you're in a situation like the one I was in. And I won't pretend that I didn't become overwhelmed. I was very, very overwhelmed a lot of the time. But I think all you can do is focus on the step in front of you, one foot at a time. And that's all that's expected of you. And that's all you can do. The person that I was when I got out of surgery the last time is not the person I am today and I can do a lot more, but that didn't happen overnight. And I think I've spent a lot of time in my recovery journey feeling very impatient that things weren't happening fast enough and that I wasn't recovering quickly enough and, and just desperate for sort of magic solutions that would be quick and not require a lot of energy from me because I'm exhausted by um, all of this. But I feel like having simplified my whole approach to life to one foot after another, one step at a time, I've been able to do life in bite-sized chunks, for want of a better term, as somebody who's tube-fed. Those are the things I think that people would benefit from remembering is that you don't have to fix it all. And, and just because today is a terrible day doesn't mean that tomorrow will also be a terrible day. And that sometimes time really does heal. It's such a cliched thing to say, but there is no substitute for time and allowing the body to do what it does. And that is to fight for survival. 
And my body I have come to appreciate is a pretty tough body that is quite amazing at um, overcoming what should be insurmountable odds, really. And when I had my surgeons explain to me just how close I came to death and when I read all of the documents and discharge summaries and see the words, you know, near-death experience written by doctors, I am constantly amazed and grateful at still being here and being able to craft a life that means something to me and it isn't the life I had before and I grieve every day for the life and the person that I was before. The hypoxic brain injury that I have also makes me very reactive, very, um, you know, I'm an oversharer, which is great on a podcast, but not so great when you're at work. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I have this impulse control issue that um, that means, you know, I just react to things um, before I've had the opportunity to think about them. And, and so the brain injury side of things from all the resuscitations and, you know, having uh, my brain having been starved of oxygen for a period of time has these very real impacts and I seem to be quite with it a lot of the time and so I feel like people don't appreciate the depth and severity of my disability sometimes because invisible disabilities are a bit like that. I think uh, they can be very difficult for people to see and respond to appropriately because you just can't see them. Some of what I went through um, has also taught me a lot about what it is to be human and vulnerable, to rely on other people and the importance of community, and that really all that matters is each other. I think one of the reasons I can now run long distance and then I'm, I'm, you know, starting and embarking on a journey of endurance sports is because it's such a privilege to be able to move a body. (laughs) You know, it's such a privilege to be able to choose to put my body in a situation where it's not entirely comfortable in order to run a marathon or a race or to do something that's that is important to me that's going to give me a sense of satisfaction and give me a sense of pride in myself Um, when I was in hospital those six months I experienced pain and suffering and discomfort every single day and I didn't have a choice in that and I couldn't escape it and I feel like the way that I coped with that was to go away in my mind and to disconnect body and brain to the point where I didn't really know myself anymore. I didn't feel at all connected. Running brings me back to my body. It helps me feel connected to myself in a way nothing else has, but it also teaches me the value of one foot in front of the other. And that's all you need to focus on when you're out there running. And I also have PTSD as a result of a lot of the things that have happened to me in the last few years. And when I run, my PTSD is quiet. Um, My brain and I are working together. We're not at war with my body anymore. That's one of the brilliant things that I've been able to take away from this new hobby that I've begun just in July Um, and then obviously throughout the month of October I was running and walking for um, RFDS to raise money which also added a layer of meaning to the whole thing that um, that made it all the more motivating and inspiring for me but from a personal point of view my recovery journey has really been about reconnecting myself you know my brain and body and to I guess call a truce (laughs) We're not at war anymore. We can work together and I can choose to put myself out there, you know, in some discomfort to get around a race, to 
to run Bridge to Brisbane and to to come in the top 5% of all of the 10,000 women who ran that race. Um, and I was the second woman across the finish line at the five-kilometre river run amazing. in Brisbane. Um, and I also recently competed at the Maribyrnong Masters Games in the 5K event and won that across all age groups and um, genders. So that for me has been an amazing experience to see what this body can do. My guts don't work. You know, there's a, my brain is not fully functional. It's, you know, it's impaired in so many ways, but my legs and my lungs do still work. I can still use them to create joy in a life that is worth living still. Yeah, and you and you do one step at a time, one step at a time, one one day at a time, one step at a time. It's just yeah. brilliant, Juliet. Just brilliant. That's one of the fun things with running is a lot of runners have mantras that they say when they're running, and that each step is a different word. And you know, mine tends to be one step, one step. You know, and that just reminding me that that's all that's needed, and that's all that's asked of any of us, and we will get somewhere if we do that. But also I, I think to myself, I'm not broken um, because I can physically feel that I'm not broken because I'm pounding that pavement with each step and getting further and further and faster and faster. And that provides a sense of achievement and self-mastery that um, nothing since I got out of hospital has. It's been a remarkable journey for me and I'm really grateful for it. I know that as a runner with um, chronic malnutrition, that's something that I do need to watch and I need to be very careful of and my doctors are keeping a very close eye on. I'm currently very low in iron because for me, being nutritionally stable is like a game of whack-a-mole. We're constantly trying to increase one level and then another one will drop and then potassium goes and then iron's gone, you know, like it, it's just this constant getting bloods and what do we need to fix this fortnight? And, um, but I'm up for the challenge and my doctors are also up for the challenge and I intend to run a marathon next year, at least I hope so, and I feel like hopefully I'll get there with a bit of determination and perhaps a bit of delusion. Um but we'll see. Oh, you're just, you are inspirational. And I'm a runner as well. And I haven't done a marathon, but I think I need to do a marathon now. Since if you're going to do a marathon, then I need to be able to at least say, oh, Juliet can do it. I can do it. Come and run the Gold Coast Marathon with me. I'll have my tube hooked up and I'll have my nutrition on board, um, which is my superpower. I know other runner Just gets amazing. to have their, you know, they have to orally take all of their high, you know, hydration and, and, um, nutrition in I'll just be able to hook up my backpack with my feeding pump and have my feeding tube attached and that will give me the nutrition that I need throughout the run thank you so much Juliet for talking to me today and I want to say thank you for supporting the Royal Flying Doctor Service and the Oceans to Outback Challenge you have um, yeah gone beyond what would be expected of any normal person and you are just yeah what you're doing is remarkable I'm I send my love to your amazing supportive family and I want to say thank, thank you. you for talking to us today. Thank you for having me and also thank you to the RFDS for saving my life, for making it possible for me to be on this wonderful journey that is life. Without them, I dread to think what my life would be now and even if I would have one. I'm going to finish, Juliet, with some of the beautiful, you sent me two beautiful, really uplifting songs, and I'm going to finish <laughs> this podcast with that so our listeners can listen to them. Thank you so much. Thank you. Are you looking for love? Are you looking for God? Are you looking for hope? 
And when you thought you had it, did you open your hands just to see that you don't? Are you looking for something, end up with nothing, end of the road? Get in the car, I think there's a light at the end of the road. Word of mouth is always the best promotion for a podcast. So if you enjoy this podcast or a specific story, please share with family and friends. If you haven't already, join our Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community. And you can also send feedback, questions or comments to me directly at lana.mitchell at rfds.org.au. Donations to support the Royal Flying Doctor Service can always be made through our website at flyingdoctor.org.au. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Coolen. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode. And thanks again to our major sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu Ute is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates. To learn more, search Azuzu Ute online.